Welcome to Solutions, when men come out of the shadows to testify, giving tips in manhood, honor the codes of integrity, and give out real solutions for soul survival. Today, we have a special formatted show for you today, a co-show, the Dukan Podcast, mixed with Solutions for Men. I have one of the three here with me, OT. How you doing, man? Man, I'm feeling great, and I love that intro. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, man, I mean, I was so happy that we've met at the WCCE, and I've been excited for this. Since we since we kicked it for a few minutes, because like it's just certain people you meet and yeah. you're like, you know, you could tell you go vibe well, you know? Yeah, absolutely, man. I'm, are you ready to drop these gems and answer these questions today? Yes, sir. Let's do this. OK, let's kick it off with the first question from the podcast. It's going to be a little different today, ladies and gentlemen, listening, but we're going to go back and forth. And this is kind of like the first time you guys get to actually get me interviewed yeah. today. But what person did you meet or see that gave you the drive towards the man you are today? Who or what defined you? Wow. So shout out to my pops and moms for bringing me into this world. But, uh, <laughs> you know, can't do nothing without them. But I think that it wasn't a person as much as it's been situations. It was a what? Uh, I've said this on our show before. Um, I'm post kidney transplant, hence the kidney pin on the suit. Um, and that experience I always look back at as a rebirth experience for me. I became hyper aware of my own mortality in a way that I never was before. Cause the first time I had a surgery, I was 21 mm. and I've lived with kidney problems. Like, you know, and again, shout out to my parents cause they detected it very, very early. So living life, knowing that you're not normal and being reminded that you're not normal as a kid was challenging enough but then going through the surgery experience and everything that happened afterwards really threw my life in a loop and that situation itself is what I would credit to what made me the man I am today absolutely I love the fact that you went through some adversity right. and it made you a better person some people never come back from that Tell me something that helped you come back from those transgressions in your life. All right, how much time you got? <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, so to take it to take it back to the, uh, I was trying to be brief in my response because I'm like, I don't know how much details I can get into, but let's do it, man. So I, when I, I was born with something called a kidney reflux, which most people, mo yeah, almost all babies in the world tend to have it, but generally your body's so young and still cells are generating themselves that you recover fast from it. Um, in my case, I didn't recover as I should have. So one kidney got a bit more beat up than the other. Mm. And what it means is that what a reflux is, is when you urinate, um, the connections from your kidneys to your bladder are not as muscles are not strong enough yet. So what tends to happen is some of the urine shoots back and results in something called interior scarring of the kidney, mm. right? But again, you're still a baby, your body figures it out, and then it learns, right, over time. Um, one of them got, did not recover as well as the other. That resulted in something else called kidney dysplasia, which is where it pressures the performance of the other kidney. So from a very young age, I was very lucky at the age of two, mom's being a doctor. She noticed something was abnormal. She spoke to her eldest brother who was a pediatrician mm. and he's like, all right, there's this doctor in the UK you guys should go to. He's an expert in, um, nef uh, in nephrology, P 
pedi- pediatrics for kids, mm-hmm. and he'll be the best person to consult. So that began this journey of my life where every vacation we would travel somewhere new in the world. We'd go see some doctors, someplace, somewhere, everywhere from the UK to Hong Kong to Malaysia to Jordan, other parts of the Middle East. Like, you know, I'm incredibly grateful that my parents never stopped. They didn't just take one opinion. They're like, we want as many as we can get because that first doctor, and I remember his name, interestingly enough, he's the only person I actually remember his name till, t- till date, uh, Dr. Parrott probably may rest in peace by now because he was quite old at the time. He said that I would have kidney failure by the age of 13 and I would need a transplant by 18 because I believe the laws back then, um, modern medicine, I mean, medicine then was not as advanced where you could transplant a child. So you had to be an adult, 18 plus, to get a kidney transplant. And as part of that, I w- my body would have been my nutrition. So that means I would actually not grow beyond a certain height and a certain weight limit. And there were all these limitations to my life that he projected. And my parents were like, you know what? We're going to ask everybody else. And I'm glad that they did. I mean, I'm glad we got the warning because that prepared them. But then it began this journey. The biggest thing you said to me and that I took in is that the fact that you had a community and you had a village to go to. It oh, yeah. started with the village of having the opportunity to have someone in the medicine field to help you figure out to diversify what you need to do in your next steps. But my question also, my follow-up question to this is the people you've met along your journey who happen to be in this niche of of information that's going on within their systems, how much have you been an advocate for it now? And how much do you stand firm and let people know like, hey, and do you have you met other people like yourself? Oh, I'm a huge advocate for it. Um, I always tell people, I mean, because of what happened, I've been very lucky to get tested frequently for everything. Just mm-hmm. go do general blood and urine tests as a kid, right? And then after my surgery, I get, I have to go get tested every 90 days or so, right? So I make sure that my body is performing at optimal. So for most people, you don't know if you're drinking enough water, if you don't know if mm. you're doing something well enough, just go to a medical lab and just get a test just to understand your body better. Mm. So I'm better in tune with my internal systems mm-hmm. because of it, right? It taught me a lot. Like I know all the medical vernacular in the space now. <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you know what know, it makes like, me think about? Yeah. Back in the day when people would get something called a VCR. Anybody know what a oh, VCR is? Right. V- if, VHS tape, right? Then you want, you're old as we are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you know what a VCR or any item you get out of the store, most people just plug it in and press play. They rarely read the manual and understand the ins and outs unless you had a malfunction. Exactly. in your system and you don't have the resources to take it to someone who fixes it. Now you got to take it apart and now you now you work it better than everyone else. But how rare is that air that we don't even read the manual? Right. It's right there. Especially when it comes to your body. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that no, with My us. pleasure, man. So real quick, fast forward to 2010. Um, university. I was in university at the time, approaching my senior year, and my nephrologist at the time was like, all right, this is it. Looks like you're going to need a transplant or you're going to end up needing dialysis. Mm. And I've read so much about dialysis by then. It was a very scary thought. I'm like, you know what? Let's just, if we can do the surgery, let's just go to surgery. Mm -hmm. And speaking about a village, very blessed about being Sudanese because in Sudanese culture, it's all, we're heavily communal. And this is something that I remember, I'm like, you'd hear a lot about, you know, 
donors list and getting on lists and mm-hmm. seeing when you can find a kidney or an organ. Mm-hmm. And people lined up to donate. Family, friends, everybody wanted to donate a kidney. Because of the impact my parents had in the community, people wanted to support in any which way they can, right? Not Some of them were literally village folk where my parents my father came from my mom's a city girl but like my dad (laughs) my dad was a country boy but you know they 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 didn't understand it but they're like yeah whatever you need right Right. and that for me was a shocking moment but it made me incredibly grateful and the day of the surgery so my, my parents said no they fought back and my dad decided to be the donor and what he said at the time, I remember before surgery, you got to go to a therapy session together to make sure that you are mentally fit to donate and to receive. Mm. And my father said that he's like, you know, what? I was always a financial provider. I wasn't there enough. Their mother did everything. So at least I want to feel like I'm doing something that's not financial. So that's why he insisted to be the one to donate. So my dad ended up being the donor and Surgery went great. Everything went well. Um, unfortunately, a few weeks later, people underestimate our immune system. The doctors underestimate because, interestingly enough, when it comes to African-Americans specifically, you get act- very different medication for as post-transplant for your immunosuppressants so your body can accept the kidney. And see, it turns out it's not just because you're... Af- the theory in the medical field is that because of the history of slavery and survival of the fittest over time that you have a very powerful genetic build. Like in women's pregnancies. Exactly. Okay. Right? So then the assumption is that your immune system is a lot stronger than most people, which is fairly true. It makes sense. I get the, uh, I get the, the logic, logic behind it. Mm-hmm. But in my case, my body seems to have had a similar immune system somehow. It just fought back and... You know, the kidney got beat up a little bit, and I ended up getting sent back to hospital. And at the time, I think I was in, I I was kept in about 30 plus days. And unlike most people, when you're in a hospital bed, it's a very lonely space. Because when you're post-transplant, you're heavily immunosuppressed. And that means your body's not going to be able to fight anything, Mm. right? So you cannot have that many visitors. Barely anybody can come and see you or even stay with you in the room. So it becomes a very, very lonely space. And at the time, I was having post-transplant dialysis. So that means you're, in dialysis, you're, you're, you're going through dialysis after surgery, not before. Mm. And plasma dialysis, and things got very, very difficult. And I remember one of the nurses came in. I don't know if it was like a, a smoker or was sick or something. Whatever it was that they had, I caught it. And at the time, if you're a post-transplant or you're heavily immunosuppressed, what would just give you a sniffles or a couple of sneezes, that could knock me out. And it did. I started coughing constantly to the point where I would cough so hard the bed would shake. And after that, all I remember is just darkness. Mm. I wake up a few days later in the ICU, wake up from this coma, and I had, um, you know, those um, oxygen masks. But this was like an industrial size one that gets strapped to your head. Mm. And if, you know, getting into a coma, you're coughing. Getting out of it, you... That's all. That's the last memory you have. So you wake up in panic, mm. and all I wanted to do was rip it off. And they're like, "No, no, you can't. If you take it off, you're dead. Your lungs don't work." Mm. And 
doctors had to make a choice. Hey, do we save a kidney or do we save your life? You know? Yeah. So they lowered my medication that I, I was being given through IV so that give my bot, my immune system a chance yes, to f- protect my lungs. Mm-hmm. And the way he described it is like, think of it like a lawnmower. This machine is pumping air in and out of your lungs for you. And it's trying to kickstart your lungs again. And let's hope it works. Right. Uh, thankfully, it did. I'm here today. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and that moment specifically was that rebirth for me, because coming out of that, I was in a very difficult space in my life, you know, um, heavy depression. And at the time, I didn't have the wherewithal to understand that this is what depression is. Didn't want to see people. And I just wanted to kind of you know, you get suicidal thoughts and you kind of get into this very, very dark space. Mm-hmm. What got me out of it was yeah. I, I insisted to get back to school. I'm like, I got to get back to university. I can't sit home. I've been cooped up in hotel in, in a hotel. And then I was like in hospital rooms and then eventually my bedroom for way too long. I need to be out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people now they're understanding you got to wear masks and all that. But at the time it was very awkward because Mama, that was so worried. She's like, "You should wear your mask to university." I'm like, "I got no." I'm like, "Yeah, sure." And I'll wear it as soon as I'm at the door. I'll take it off, <laughs> which I shouldn't have, but that's what I would do. And I had a marketing course that I was taking at the time, and I didn't. Interesting, I didn't care about school. It was just being out, mm. right? And it was an 8 a.m. class. And once you kind of had this dance with death in some way, or you know, kind of not knowing if you're going to live to see tomorrow. Um, you, you don't think too much about school if you're in a dark space of, in your life. And I wouldn't always attend class. Didn't care too much about it. And the professor asked me into our class and she said, listen, I'm one of the toughest professors in the school mm-hmm. because I don't do this multiple choice stuff, open-ended questions. You're not going to pass my class. You've barely attended. You don't even know what's coming in the midterm, right? <laughs> and I've always been a guy that you should just never tell me that I can't do something. Challenge. Bruh. As soon as I hear that, we're on now. I'm going to take you for your money, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I'm like, ah, yo, you're on. And I didn't drop the class. And I just, it's marketing. To me, it was just common sense. I walked in and I, into that exam. Not only did I ace it, I walked out with an A- minus in that course. And to prove my point even further, the following semester, I took three classes with her. <laughs> just to be that wait, guy wait a minute <laughs> we just went further further down the agenda I yeah see. and in that program i remember first class i walked in she's like oh seems like you've matured over the summer you took three classes with me i'm like that's yo that's a backhanded compliment like i'm not sure you, you're trying to diss me right now and she asked me to stay after class and we we had a chat uh, we had a chat and she's like she she was honest she's like listen like clearly you know you you know your stuff what happened like why you know, what happened that semester? And I told her my story. And she challenged me in that moment. She looked me dead straight in the eyes and said, if you are to die today, what have you done for yourself? And I'm like, huh? Mm. <laughs> she, and she said, it. no, no if, if, if you are to die today, what are you leaving behind for yourself? You know, what is there to speak for you? And I had nothing. My answer was, I don't know. And he's like, well, maybe you should look into doing something. And that was that slap in the face, that wake-up call that I needed. And that was that that moment till today I will carry with me for the rest of my life because that was it. It's, to me, it's the same focus that you remember that first doctor's name. 
Yeah. You're carrying his legacy with you within your breath. Exactly. So he lives on because yeah. of that. Absolutely. I, I, I have more questions hey for man, you, but let's, do it. let's see what you, <laughs> let, let's see what you got for me. Everybody wants to hear people ask me questions. Too, yeah. So. All right. So, I mean, you walked in here talking about you wrote a book. So <laughs> before we get to your book, I come bearing gifts, though. Here you go. You, you can hold it oh, snap. before we get to it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's look at this. Ten most effective ways to reignite self-love. Yo, yeah. coming through with the title. Coming through. Hey, man. All right. I'm excited for this. Let me get the young photos. Yeah. <laughs> Don't tell nobody. All right. <laughs> okay, so, so you said your wife is from Brooklyn. Yes. You're from the Bronx. Yes. What are you doing here? We're in Dubai right now. What are you doing here? I'm in Dubai because my wife expressed to me that she wanted to teach abroad, and I had a long career in entertainment and hip-hop and also working for UPS, mm-hmm. and it was time for a change. I said, sure, I will support whatever you want to do. So we came out here and that was it. What career? For me? Yeah. What, what did you do in hip hop? Uh, I used to I used to be an MC and a uh, live entertainer. Okay. And then I traveled a lot and tried to really harness the career. And I was successful at some points, but I had reached a point where it was time for growth. Mm. And not that I'm not an MC anymore, but it's just a different different avenue, different street that I'm walking down now. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you're still behind a mic. Yeah, still behind so a there, mic. So there's that. I mean, yo, to be honest, shout out to everything hip hop culture. Right. It it had such a critical role in who we are today. Absolutely. Because you were part of that. Yeah. I am, I am the Sudanese kid that grew up yes, outside of the U.S. that dealt with a lot of racial profiling and issues in this part of the world, where back then. I would get into fistfights with kids in school my entire life. I'm the eldest of four boys. I had to fight and protect my younger siblings, right? Because of, and it wasn't, I mean, looking at it now, there was no malice or ill intent, but it was just ignorance. Unfamiliarity. Exactly. And I understood there was this hierarchy and classism of black people that people unintentionally put into things. Well, people don't, you know what? Many people don't understand the dichotomy of that. Yeah. That, that capitalism, that, that sensationalization. Exactly. Exactly. Right. That so, nepotism. All yes. the isms, right? All the isms. Within us. Not even outside. No, no, no. Within I mean, us. And, and, you know, we all, like, I mean, honestly, shout out to like Charlemagne the God for talking about black privilege, because that is a huge privilege that mm. we don't get to talk about because Growing up, we come from the Martin and the Fresh Prince era, right? right? Correct. You'd see that on TV. You'd see performers on MTV and hip-hop artists and music. And we'd see NBA and black athletes. And they, the way I saw it, being a 12, 13-year-old in school, they were coveted. Everybody, all the guys wanted to be them. All the girls wanted to be with them. And, but then I was treated so differently. Mm-hmm. And that drove me insane with so many questions of what makes them different as black people then. Uh, they look like me, those same people on TV, right, right? right? And for the first time, also, that's when I saw my likeness. Because up until that point, media here did not show me successful black people doing their thing. How you, how you like it today? Yo, love it today. Because today it's accessible to anybody and everybody on your phone. And you don't have to be that celebrity with a few gatekeepers that decide what you get to see on TV and where you get to hear on the radio. 
Mm. Right. And I remember my cousins would fly in from the U.S. or from Europe. They bring all the source magazines and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so they, they got me all tapped in. So what do you do? Rock your <laughs> we there. There's a marketplace there where we used to go and get bootleg Sean John jeans and mm. rock aware. There's also a marketplace in, <laughs> in New York where you can get that stuff from, too. Right. And, it you know, you guys rock it to school. And I went to private school. So we had school uniform. And just like the Fresh Prince with that reverse jacket that okay. he had. So let me give you a caveat. <laughs> I, I went to private school as well. Oh, shit. So <laughs> <laughs> my so, people. Yeah. So so we we try to do different things. Maybe rock some fly sneakers or Bruh. loosen up the tie low. I would buy my like school uniform four sizes bigger. <laughs> <laughs> With the yellow Timberland boots. Yeah, being from the Bronx, rocking nice, <laughs> ni- nice Yankee hat to go with the outfit. Yeah. Something that hip hip made it hip hop some kind of way, especially being from the Mecca. Yeah. It's just we don't even know that we we knew we had something, but we were just living in our style. We had no idea it ingratiated itself to where it is yeah. now. When I travel to Athens, Greece, the whole entire city is full of graffiti. Yeah. Like, it's tatted up. Bro, I got to take you to Saudi Arabia and show you what that Saudi graffiti looks like. Oh, man. Man, you, this is the thing. You come from that Mecca. We sat at a podcast table just like this. We interviewed Carlos Mayer, which not many people would know unless you're in the OG hip-hop scene. He was one of the original graffiti artists in the 1970s in the Bronx mm-hmm. from, you know, the New Ricans of New York City. The New Ricans, wow. he, And, you know, if you ever seen Star Wars documentary, he was that little 13-year-old kid in that documentary, right? And this was the early days of our show. He sat there and he's like, when I travel the world, I travel with two passports. He's like, I got my American passport that got me through borders. And I have this hip-hop passport that gets me into spaces and cultures. He's like, B-boys, same thing. You c- they'll give you a sofa to sleep. If you got nowhere to go, mm-hmm. but you're part of the hip-hop community, you'll have a roof over your head. You'll find a sofa or a floor or a bed to sleep on, and somebody's going to feed you. You're set, yeah. right? And that's something I'm forever grateful for because even though I'm not an American, but I... That culture became mine because it gave me a home. But you're hip hop, though. Exactly. That's a whole nother thing. It gave me an identity. It gave me a home. It gave me a space that I could call mine and can do everything within my powers to contribute to. I mean, bro, when I was a teenager, I got into, I tried to MC. I, <laughs> I got into graffiti. You know, I, I actually uh, DJ. Yo, I, I, and I remember I got turntables. Back yeah, then, so you got a different deep. respect for it. Yep, exactly. Serato, which is no offense to Serato, no. but back in the day, it was, a a different lot, grind. it was a lot more work to be something. Yeah. Now and you can practice at the house, but before right? you had to actually have the money to buy the records and have somebody carry them. Exactly. And, and I understood that. Like, anywhere I go in the world now, it, I will always find my people. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter your race, your background, where you come it from. I always feel comfortable. I moved to the Bay Area. I was in school. I lived in Oakland. And... I've never felt more comfortable in my life. Listen, the Bay is responsible for a lot of taglines in hip hop. Yeah. We don't talk about that much, but you guys uh, get the Bay this props. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's do it. And for shizzle. <laughs> you know, and I, I went to New York and I made it a point. It's like, it's like for Muslims, for us going to Mecca and Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. I went to the Bronx and I'm like, I want to see this. Oh. I went to 123rd Park and I walked around and I'm like, mm-hmm. I just wanted to go to Sedwick Avenue and all that. Yes. Okay. And I'm like, it was just, and I was on my own. I was just, this is just for me. Yeah. Like, it's just paying my dues and paying my respects. Like, I have to go there. Yeah. Right? So, that was also part of my journey. Absolutely. So, dude, like, this started 
by youth for youth and it will always have this adolescence energy about it no matter how old you get it always keeps you young can i give you a, a caveat yeah. I don't know if you know this about yourself. You said you just wanted to go outside, right? Yeah. Right? That's how hip-hop was started. I mean, yeah. it started with house parties, of course. Yeah. But those are people who just wanted to go outside. That's it. Go outside and have a good and time. And be free That's of whatever oppression. If you yes. look at the Bronx in the 70s, these are half-built buildings with bricks. Man. And <laughs> I read every book, watched every documentary I could get my hands on. If you could see the buildings, and you, you wouldn't believe that people lived in them. Right? And they found comfort. And that's a question I have for you. Mm. I know you went through these dark times and you put you in a dark place. There's some type of normalcy that comes out of that, right? So you start to get used to your struggle. You know you're going to make it out. What other things in life have held you back besides the, the, the big footnote of what you went through? What other places take you to a place where, like, man, I can't let this take me? My citizenship. Mm. I'm a Sudanese citizen and unfortunately due to global politics that holds me back in a lot of ways that people might not understand for you to set up a bank account today as an american citizen in this part of the world probably 24 to 48 hours and you're good i have to wait three months to get approvals let's talk about that because as a simple example yeah me moving over here i found out that and a lot of people don't understand the power of an american passport Oof. Like, uh, yeah. except let's set the people who don't have one. Yeah. There are many people within America right now. I know that shocked me. They lollygag like, you got a passport? <laughs> nah, you know, I'll go get one. I'm not really going anywhere right now. Maybe. Yeah. But a lot of people don't think about how that unlocks the world. Like you can actually get your passport and say, hey, I want to go to this country tomorrow. And you could just show up. Just jump on a plane right now. And they're going to open the door for you. Yeah. Anyone else has to call three, four months in advance, get approved and probably pay a bunch of let me tell you what it takes for well, me you t- as a Sudanese. Please, you, you, so you, you this is what right it takes here. for me as a Sudanese to go to the United States, right? I got to go to the bank and get six, month, six months worth of bank statements from my personal account. As a business owner, I also need to provide six-month bank statements for my company, right? And I also need to get a, a lot of documents ready, fill in an online survey, book in time at the American Embassy, which if you're lucky, you'll find time around. Like, at the moment... W- we're recording this right now. We're in December of 2021. My brother is in New York City. He's about to graduate over the summer from Cornell Med School, right? For me to make it to his graduation, I got to apply as early as February so I can make sure I got my visa in time to make it in time. In 2011, after my surgery, I was part of um, the model United Nations University. And, dude, that's a funny one. So, <laughs> they, so I... I I just got into it for the sake of wanting to do everything, right? Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, they they were invited to um, they were invited to New York. I think it was to uh, Columbia, and they were hosting this global model UN experience. And one of the delegations was a representation for hip hop culture around the world. Oh, and I'm like, that that's me. I'm doing that, yeah. right? And we're a bunch of students. We get our papers from the university. Same process to get a visa, right? But now I had to get no objection letters from university and get the invitation from Columbia University and get all these documents, go to the embassy. And it was my first time wanting to go to the U.S. And the lady looked at me. She's like, when's the event? I'm like, oh, it's in a month from now. And she's like, I don't don't know if you'll make it because we need to do a background check and do all that. It might take a bit of time. Give them my passport anyway. Obviously missed it. 
because I didn't get my passport in time. Everybody ended up going. I got my passport back from the embassy about 10 months later mm. with no visa stamped in it because it took over six months to get processed. Right. That's amazing. So that's what I go through. <laughs> Just to hear that is I, I don't have I'm lost for words because when I when I was in college we had student exchange programs and I believe mm-hmm. my sister did a student exchange and she went to Paris. Yeah. But it was nothing. It was like, hey mom, sign this permission slip so I can go to Paris. And jump on a plane. And jump on a plane yeah. and go. And and before 9-11 in the U.S. Before these things, it was even easier to jump on a plane and go. It was, Madness. there was no TSA. There was nobody stopping you. You could just go get on a plane and go yeah. somewhere in America. Before we had our issues with whatever we had our issues with at the time, you can do anything yeah. at the moment. And to me, it's, I've met someone here. Uh, I was at a hotel and it was a guy. He was like, I'm, I've been trying to get in your country. They denied me three times. And that's when it became aware of me. Like, what do you mean denied you? Like, you don't want to, I, I mean, I know I don't know you, but how about you just come with me? And when I go home, you can just, no, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Hey, man, it's my <laughs> man. Let him in. He's yep. with me. No, nah, it doesn't work like that whatsoever. So I, I employ you people out there. Um, I don't know what it takes to make the student exchange program just as fluid as a person who just wants to visit. Yeah, it's tough, man. It, it is tough. Yeah. It, even if I want to go down on business, like they're different, they're different. Americans are quite diligent with it. Like there are different visas for everything, mm. everything. If it's a business visa, if it's a student visa, if you're coming for tourism, if it's a medical, like it doesn't matter. There, there's this very detailed system in place. The good news is once you've gotten it, once you get it for the first time, it gets easier every time. Well, right? The most interesting thing you're saying to me is that my yeah. country intakes so much poor imports. Yeah. We do a lot of imports, not many exports. No, man. But y'all we don't do imports of people that yeah, much. Yeah, y'all bullies, man. <laughs> <laughs> I can't speak for that. <laughs> no, I'm playing. I'm, playing. <laughs> no, I'm blaming no, you. No, I'm but, just messing with you. But we, we grew up to understand, like, you know what? It is what it is. If you want a better opportunity, go live somewhere and spend five, six years there, contribute to the economy, get yourself a citizenship. Or so at least a green card. One right. of the major questions I ask on the show is how important it is to leave where you're from to develop yourself where you're going. And you pretty much just answered that. Yeah. But I want to follow up by asking you, even though your citizenship, dark times, what type of affirmations are you telling yourself to make sure that you don't go to these places where you stay in the light, you stay around good, vibrant people? To be honest, I found a purpose for myself. So... To, to go back to that university time. So that, that was a critical moment with that professor. Yes. Um, with her, she was, until today, we're great friends. We still talk, we email, we catch up. And um, another university professor I had, I had a, this was an evening class with him. It was a 7 p.m. The most unusual professor in the way he taught our classes because he would, he'd have a little tennis ball that he'd pass it around the class. He'd make us get up and like dance or like just hang out, do all these different things that were unorthodox for a university program and or he would take us all out and do an outdoor class which at least in our university that was unheard of and 7 p.m class because most of the people in, in in my class were would work by day and then you know go to school at night and one day he asked what's your purpose to the classroom and people were looking at him like huh he's like no like if you had to define a purpose what is your purpose and in that moment, people started sharing different answers, right? Everybody's just making their different guesses. And I just wrote it down in my notebook for whatever reason it was. I just thought it was a really interesting question. I never really thought about that before. Mm-hmm. And 
eventually one person said, oh, to leave my fingerprint in the world before I pass. I'm like, oh, that's so cool. Write it down, <laughs> right? I, I was like, oh my God, that's so beautiful, he said. Yeah. And he's like, okay, great, but what does that mean to you? Because that's quite general. That could be, that's for everybody. But it's like, what does that mean to you? What is this fingerprint that you want to leave behind? And like, oh, bro, I don't know. And, you know, we're just, we're just messing around. And I had no answers. And in the classroom, it started raining that night. And if you live in the Middle East, you know, it doesn't rain often, especially in the UAE. Mm-hmm. You know, and when it does, it's like a big celebration. It's like, Everybody oh, my God, it's raining. Outside, get their phones right? wet. Exactly. <laughs> so, and everybody wants to take today. It's on everybody's IG story yeah. if it rains. Yeah. <laughs> so at the time, it started raining. And these girls, by the way, are like, oh, my God, it's raining. This is going to be so much fun, you know. And boys being boys, you know, they, they were, you know, were just roasting. One of, one, of the, one of the guys was getting roasted about how he got this new sports car. And oh, he's, as, soon as, as soon as he steps out, he's going to start drifting around in his car, right? About an hour after the class, I get a call. Unfortunately, he got into an accident and passed away. Mm. The, the car flipped and he, 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 he unfortunately, he, he passed away in his car. And he was a newlywed. It's been two weeks since he got married. Oh, man. Right? So it was quite difficult. And everybody was like in shock. So we all got together and, you know, funeral and everything. Um, but that was such a stark moment for me because, okay, well, what? what was that fingerprint that you want to leave behind before you went, right? And it kind of, it put me in the space of wanting to ask that question. So for me, I'm like, okay, well, then what is my purpose? And I didn't have an answer for it at the time, but I'm like, okay, I got to figure this out somehow. And so to bring it back to your question, I just figured out that I need to have a purpose. And for me, I realized it's very fluid over time. I've learned that it's fluid. And at the time, back then, I'm like, you know what? I just want to create and leave the coolest memory that I can of myself on campus before I leave this university and then do it again wherever I go and do that again and do that again. Eventually, that manifested itself to always leave people better than you found them. And if that's what I want to do, then I need to be a better version of myself to be able to provide and take care of people around me to leave them better than I found them. Right? Be it friends, be it employees, be it my suppliers, be it my business partners, be it clients whatever it is anybody you meet if that's the objective then you always got to be your best self and somehow that kept me very very positive um i became my that took me out of my depression i became my most optimistic self till date i am incredibly optimistic that i tend to avoid pessimism and interestingly enough like i i'm a huge contributor in the post-transplantic community i make myself incredibly as available as possible to post transplants even i've told my doctors i've told the people at the hospital is that if anybody wants to do this and doesn't know or has questions or is scared please feel free to give my email might give them my phone number they're more than welcome to reach out and i'll be happy to talk to them right and that, that and i put that as part of the practice and remember when i first moved back from the u.s so i came back to dubai from the states in 2015 and I, I came back for this job, and it was great. At the time, it was cool. enjoyed it. One of my colleagues, I later found out, was also in a similar circumstance as myself. Mm. And we spoke, and we hung out. And you know, then around that time is when I started the show, and eventually we invited him on as a guest to, I'm like, oh, my God, let's talk about it. You yeah. know, different experiences. He was still in a very dark place. Mm. I've, till date, I've never released that episode. I don't think I ever will because it was – very very heavy it left i remember back then reem and i were hosting the show together reem was just devastated like she was he took her out 
and he had mm. such a negative outlook on the world, a very negative outlook on life and himself. And my, I, I can't share that energy with the world because usually I'm very happy about sharing stories that are difficult, but I, there's got to be adversity and sort of a a moment of release and a chance and a change. But he was too still there, and it, and it, and I remember she asked me after that night, she's like, "You guys have been through very difficult experiences. So how are you so different from him?" And I had no answer to. It. I'm like, I, I don't know, but it just taught me that I can never let myself be that person, right? And use my story in any way, shape, or form possible to just let people know that we all go through difficult times. Well, Everybody has their cards that are dealt in life, and it's the game you play with it. You decided. Yeah. The definition of decide is to kill one side. You made a decision to be yeah. a better person. And that's really all it really takes, no matter how hard the walk is, no matter how daunting it may be. It, it's just a decision to be better. No doubt. Now I want to ask you a couple of fun questions. I let's like do it. On the show. That was too heavy, maybe. So let's, no, let's no, 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 <laughs> no. This is, this is where we go on okay, solutions. Okay, good. I'm here for it. I mean, if Dukan has any questions for me, I'm here for it as well. Yeah, I want to talk about your book in a minute. Oh, that would be great, man. Let's talk about the book. What have you procrastinated on and why? Bro, everything. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, somebody, you know what, funny story, somebody else told me the other day, they call it, uh, what was it? They, they, they call it strategic laziness. Strategic <laughs> laziness, ladies and gentlemen. We have a new name for right? procrastination. Yeah, give yourself a chance to recover. Um, so, strategic laziness right <laughs> i my, so my mind goes that so i'm not a linear thinker i've learned that recently about myself my mind would go into thousand different directions at the same time and i try to pull different information from it Absolutely. and make sense of it so my average work day my nine to whatever it doesn't look like oh i'm gonna block this hour for emails that hour for that i could be responding to an email i get something else that takes my focus completely away from it i'll deal with that and then i'll be writing a presentation proposal for something else oh but i got to deal with finance so within an hour i would have done way too many different things that i should not have i need to be more organized noted it's just focus it's just focus which i think just self-diagnose would it be fun ADD if or you had to focus no no i wouldn't diagnose it it just yeah. sometimes would it be fun? Because oh now, now it's fun. I feel more productive when I'm focused. Right. For sure. Productive. But is it fun not to bounce around like I got to do this? Or that? Yeah. You, it's an intensity that makes you go without eating, makes you go without sleeping. Yes. It's, it's a different. It's, a, it's another focus. Exactly. exactly. It's a broad span of right? things. So omnipresence. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, omnipresence. That's a good one. Yeah. So. So, yeah. So I think for me, it was one of those things. Where I'm like, right, yo, I got to I got to be better at this. But procrastination generally I realize when I the more I procrastinate about things are because I'm just feeling beat or defeated or creatively I'm not there. For me, when I procrastinate about things, it's because I have so much to do. I don't know which one to tackle first. Yeah, it just puts that me too. at a stalemate. Like, oh, I have all this to do, and I just yeah. look. At, I just stare at it in my mind. Like, so question: Like, how do you make time to write this? How because I pro, writers are the worst procrastinators, from what I hear. Well, it, <laughs> okay, so I was on an app called Clubhouse. Oh, familiar with it. Right. And uh, I would hold these room sessions and the rooms were extremely long. Yeah. One time we did a 15 hour room straight. What? Yeah. 15 hours. And, and hundreds of people came in to usher and ask questions about the topic. Uh, I think we did one about suffering and silence. That's a broad span mm. of things underneath that. And we tried to curtail it towards marriages. But many people came in with different topics and situations 
we had uh, women come in, men come in. We had one woman in particular. Who and it's was, easy to seg on Clubhouse. It's so easy to segue into something completely different. Right. But yeah. we stayed we stayed with okay. it for 15 hours. We had one woman come in and talk about how she she was a, she saved herself for marriage, but she was a very beautiful woman. She saved herself for marriage, and then when it came time to consummate, every time she wanted to consummate with her husband, she could see Jesus in the corner. Oh God. She can never turn it off. She can wow. never because her her religion. Yeah, religion, she was Christian, so she saw Jesus in the corner. And we we're not we're not therapists, so everybody was just talking. Women were giving information. And you have these mantras and all these people who are professionals coming yeah. in. So just get to get to talking. And I was moderating all of it. So many people were like, "Hey, man, you should write a book, man. All the stuff you say." And I say, "Just do my life experiences and talking to other people. When you engage in people, you pick up things through your tool belt." So a friend, uh, a friend of mine named Kenny and my brother Jamal both were like, hey, you should write a book. And I said, okay, cool. So I came up with 10 most effective ways for self-love. And then my friend Malik was like, hey, man, you're reigniting it, man. Use the word. Help me out. I'll give Ooh. Malik his credit. So I said, reignite. I said, reignite. That's it right there. This is where you need those air horn sound effects. Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah, the yeah. Jamaicans. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. Shout so, out to your brother, man. Yeah. So 10 most effective ways to reignite self-love is really about people like myself who, who've had it, who was popular, mm-hmm. and you let it go, and then you needed something else to come, come out to Asheville Phoenix. Like, coming from yeah. hip-hop culture, no, you didn't hear about me on the BET Awards. That didn't mean I want, didn't want to be there. It just wasn't in the cards for me. Didn't right. mean I didn't try. Didn't mean I didn't put in all the work that shooting in the gym like any other person would shoot. I just wasn't a star player in the game. Mm-hmm. But I was in it, and I really enjoyed it. I met a lot of star players, played along a lot of star players, but I was just 12 guy on the bench. Right. But... That would that did not that does not mean where I came from. I wasn't a success story for the people who were watching. Right. So for me to fall all the way off and think that I wasted my time because I did feel like I wasted my time running around trying to be what I thought was my purpose. And now how do I get that back? So this book yeah. is for the people who want to start something, but this is for the people who lost it in the fire and need it yeah. back because think- you had it. I completely agree. And just as a note to that idea of like the people in the neighborhood, the community are watching. Something important to note is that people are always watching, even when you forget and you forget. You, you, sometimes you forget it or it might not have been said, but people, there's always somebody looking up to you, even if it's one person. Mm-hmm. How do you make that person's life better? That just one. Right. It's not about the millions of views or listeners. Great if you got it. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Good for you. But what is it? How are you impacting them? Right. Right. Because everybody's watching. Your younger siblings are watching. Your ex neighborhood, your ex neighbor is watching and everybody's paying attention. Absolutely. And granted, you might have not made it to the division one. But, you know, you were the ball player that ended up making it to Europe. Yeah. Right. You know? Yeah. They're still watching. They're yeah. Like, My boy's playing in Europe. And what I did was I started to take my personal experiences and think about how much they helped me. And then I didn't worry about being certified or being a therapist, but I did do the due diligence and I called a certified therapist professional that I know. And I ran through these 10 things mm. and I said, I want to make sure I'm not stepping on anyone's toes. And you know where I got that whole frequency from DJ. Mm. When I thought about people that do DJ with just digital now, can you, are you in comparison to a kid Capri versus her, someone who just yes. started? Are you showing respect to the person who carried the records and the turntable? So I had to make sure I show respect. I learned that through hip hop. Show respect to the people that actually had to do more groundwork than you. Right. They understand a different type of brick masonry work it took to build it. 
So I wanted to make sure that I wasn't therapeutically or mentally playing with anybody's mm. emotions when I wrote something. And then I decided mm. to write. It took me three days. I did not leave my computer. I wrote it straight from my mind. I No I procrastination. No procrastination on this. <laughs> I'm I, impressed. I sent myself through a rigorous amount of knowledge and information to learn how to properly produce a book, how to properly copyright the book, how to properly do these things. I set myself in a two-week... You got to send yourself back to school when you Yo, want to do this. And self-publish. And self-publish. All right. of those things. There we go. And we did it. And, and I was able to do it. And then uh, one one thing I want to warn everybody about, when you, when you birth this baby, don't be afraid to let somebody else, the doctor, take a look at it. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is once I finished writing it, I was like, nobody can read this until it's published. Nobody. <laughs> I didn't make any mistakes. I read it over it 10 times. Yeah. But you made mistakes. Of course. They're in there. Yeah. And I'm sure they're probably still in there now. But I let other people... Uh, assess the situation and they found mistakes and I'm happy they did yeah. and but that's good because now you got to do a 2.0 later yeah get a 2.0 so but no not this version actually before I put it out oh I, before you so put yeah, it out you okay, got an okay. advanced copy it's not even out it's going out probably out for sale in like a week right, I got to get this autograph when we're done yeah, absolutely and one of the things there's two things in there one thing that I accomplished and one thing that I'm currently struggling with and the first one is uh, interview your parents I did that I'm yet to do that. I'm trying to get my dad on the show for a minute. Yeah. Just in general, though, if you're a yeah. general person, each year of each segment of your life, whether you're young or in your 20s or you're getting into an elder statesman, like if you have the opportunity to interview your guardians or your parents or somebody who has a close characteristic trait of you, ask them, I say 20 questions of the hard stuff, mm. the hard stuff, because you unlock things about yourself. For me, ask my dad, why did you leave? We had a single parent home. He explained it to me. And when I start to do the due diligence of his pastimes and what they believed in, it was different. It was different. And some people would say that it was foolish, but back then it wasn't so much. He left because my mom got a job. Hmm. Now think about that in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, how that's when women started to really work and really assert themselves. It wasn't normal. Just like you said, growing yeah. up in Sudanese. Yeah. Where you wanted to be hip hop, but nobody knew why. Mm-hmm. And look at it now, where a woman wanted to work, and a man was like, "No, my father told me women don't work. If you work, I'm going to leave you with these. You know, wow. I'm gonna, gonna, I'm gonna go." And now he admits that I was a big mistake. But during the, the changing of the guard, or just the development of this society, where people can work just as much as women, men oh, can yeah. work. You know, I mean, to, to add perspective to that, um, I remember I took a program which. I'm so grateful I did. Um, everybody's got 2020 vision in hindsight, mm-hmm. right? But for us to accept, not just us, but everybody else, that was the best decision available to them at the time based on the knowledge bank that they have at the right. time. Right. Right. So that's what he thought was the right thing in, in his mind. Mistakes done. You know, yeah. I'm not here to judge, but, you know, to him, that's what he thought he sh- was the right, right thing for him to do. He probably might regret it now, but at the time, again, it was just twenty twenty vision in hindsight. At the time, he didn't know better. And that's just one question, right? Yeah. And for me, like, it unlocks a lot of things because I'm a man now. I'm a man yeah. with a family. So when you, when you say these things to me, I receive it differently yeah. as if I was a child. Probably as a child, I wouldn't understand. But as a man, oh, I understand. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let, let's, let's, let me help you, Dad. Let me let you be a great-grandfather. There we go. Be a better grandfather than you were a father. Mm-hmm. I don't have to tell my son that we had these transgressions. What we can do is repair this family right now through me and let you be a great grandfather. Most definitely. And you coming through like with no judgment, 
Yeah. With no aggression, no malice, of just wanting to know better. Information. And information and learning from these very difficult 20 questions. Just small things. Like, yeah. I didn't know he was a juggler. He used to juggle, and I didn't know why I can catch stuff without looking it. Just catch Ooh. things, catch things. Sorry, catch <laughs> things. And uh, I was like, okay, cool. I unlocked right. a new skill. That's where that came from. So, do you play ball or was I did play basketball? <laughs> I, was, I was I was decent. I was decent. I didn't play any football. I was half the size I was now, but <laughs> but you know, some of this good, delicious food from around the world catches up on you when you're sitting down and eating. So, absolutely, absolutely. I got a question for you though. This is one of my funner questions. All right, and I hope hope we got some time. Yeah, don't worry about it. Did you ever get a sex talk? Who or what gave you oh, sex education? Yes, I did. I recently <laughs> spoke about this. Yo, okay. <laughs> that is a fun question. Right. I mean, I don't know how uncensored can we be on your show, but well, I'm going to tell you, it anyway. Listen, this is, a, this is a podcast for information. Talk freely. Yes, sir. Be who okay. you are. That's so, what we want. Very, very, very awkward is an understatement. So <laughs> I was 13. And, you know, as, as, as Muslims, my dad came back from, you know, evening prayers, came back to the house, and he sat me down, and he was like, um, yeah, we got to talk, and he gives me the birds and the bees talk. Mm. And I had no idea what he's talking about at the time. I'm like, wait, what? Right? And it was so strange because I, certain words made sense because I've heard them in school. Mm. Right. The older kids would say, them. Yeah. you know, like, oh, my God, what was that? You know? Yeah. And so it, it, it went like this. It's like, OK, so men are born differently from women. Men got penises. Women got vaginas. And to make a baby. The very literal and very me- medical is like the man inserts his penis into the vagina <laughs> and <laughs> spreads something called sperm oh. that goes into the egg. Right. And then that grows to become a baby. And I'm, <laughs> right. I'm, I mean, I'm messing up science right now. I forgot. It's men or something. Uh, so. meiosis. I'm, I'm not going to pretend like I remember it. I can't but, remember either. So, so it was, it was that. Right. Yeah. And it go, and then he says, like, any questions? I'm like, I don't know what to ask. Hmm. Like, Give me some time to digest this information. Like, I don't know what to tell you, man. Like, at the time, I'm like, I just shrugged and left, right? But (laughs) (laughs) it was just... Escape that one. Yeah, (laughs) that's it, right? And I'm sure he was very relieved that I left, right? Like, he was very awkward about it and very, like, blunt. But that's my dad's nature. My dad is very by the book in everything, right? Very methodical and just, like, straight to the point kind of guy. Um... He, when it comes to difficult conversations, that's how he likes to do them. So, and we just left it at that. We've never spoken about it again. Why do you we've think we run from these conversations, though? Because so, it, something is so important as sex can really shape your entire completely, life. Completely, right? And I think this is what makes us different from our parents' generation. Because the way I approach sex and everything else in my life is very different from the way do, they do things. Like, granted, I'm a Muslim, but let's be honest. Like, bro, I went to a school with some fine ladies. So, you know, <coughs> that, that talk at 13 went out one way. And I remember a big part of it was that he's trying to talk about STDs and STIs and AIDS and everything. And he was like... Which is super important. Which is necessary, right? And he's like... And I remember this line specifically. He's like, a mistake of 10 minutes would last you a lifetime. Mm. And later on, you learn, like, People are like, yeah, is it really 10 minutes, though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? But, like, so anyway, so um, 
that, so that that was that was the conversation. So, but then by the time you're like you're 16, 17, and getting in your early twenties, bro, hormones make you forget everything he said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you want to have way too much fun, right? So that was that was the sex talk, man. That was you, you know, know that. It, it, <laughs> I think I think there are some obscure families that approach sex openly. Yeah, a, and and people we look at it as weird. Like, why are you? But there's something that? to learn from them. There's something to learn from them because now. What is the best thing that kept you out of trouble when you weren't supposed to be? You would you would be out doing something you weren't supposed to be doing. Not not sex, just in general. And if your parents are right there, like you better not do that. You're gonna you get remember trouble. that ass whooping. You remember exactly is what it is. You remember what what comes the <laughs> yeah. accountability. It's from PTSD it. of that ass whooping. Yeah, you yeah. remember it like mm-mm, uh, no, I don't think I'm doing I don't this. think we're gonna go inside the window of this place and uh-uh. try to just get a little candy. We're not gonna do that. Like you yeah. guys can go, but my mom go. or dad will kill me. Yeah, so exactly. I think if we talked about sex a little bit more, especially from where in America where. It is used as taxation for representation for sometimes yeah. if you have kids or anything else that that can tie you to stuff that might not financially work for right. you or might not help on both sides, men and women's sides. It's, yeah. it's a taxing situation. Right. So, so as a strategist. Um, procrastinating strategist. Procrast- that's strategic laziness, <laughs> but yes, a procrastinating strategist. So I read this book a while back by Dr. Cloté Rapai, who's a uh-huh. French... Uh, professor, psychology, sociology professor um, that has moved to the States and he has contributed heavily to advertising industry in the US. Um, He created something called the Culture Code, which is also the name of his book. And every culture has a code for something, right? So for example, when it comes to something as stupid, as silly as cheese, right? He's like, the culture for cheese in America is death, whereas in France is alive. Right, because the way you treat cheese, you treat it like a dead body. You put it in the freezer or in the fridge. It comes in plastic bags that you have to seal, right? And it has chemicals added to it to preserve it for a little longer. Whereas, like, whereas in France, we treat it like a living thing. It sits in room temperature. When you want to buy cheese, you you tap it, you smell it, you make sure it's living, right? It's fermented, and there's a process to maintain that over time. Mm-hmm. And the stinkier it is, so the more life it had, the more expensive or the more exciting it becomes as cheese Mm. right so that's why that's life so and i thought that was really interesting and he covered sex as well and he's like sex in america is actually the code word for that he described was violence in american culture okay because like he's like if you ever and you see it in films as well where this fight this argument this moment that happens between a couple and then they end up making out and it, for if for somebody that's not American, that's so confusing. Like, y'all were just about to kill each other a second ago. Like, and y'all making love now. Mm-hmm. Right? We find it passionate. Exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. So then, and, and the thing is that the, the way he explains it is because in, in an American t- context, it's, it's uh, weaponized. Right. Right? It's weaponized for you or against you, and depending on how people use it. The way it's described, the way it's used in films, even in in daily life, even though, yes, American culture is very open Mm. about sex, right? But it's like, it's actually not because you don't have these conversations. Whereas in French culture, for them, it's like, it's the exact opposite. We are, for them, sex is very open. Yeah, and it's yeah, about yeah. Freedom and it's about expression. And you often see it in some movies where they say, you want to go for a round or two? And they'd be like, okay, is it that easy? Exactly. For them, it's, it's that because they've, Culturally, they're, they're very different. They, and it's just like, or for example, when it comes to alcohol, mm. right? For in French culture, it's like his son started drinking at 13. But for them, it's to learn how to enjoy 
and not drink. overindulge. Exactly. Like you understand champagne, you learn the grapes or the wines or whatever, the different flavors, and you get to enjoy it and indulge in it. The same way you'd enjoy a steak, you know, there's a, an art form to food. Right. Right? Whereas that, the other side is like, let's get wasted. Like why was the objective? Let's get to the other end. <laughs> right. So my, my, one of my famous uh, things I go by in the movie Incredibles, mm-hmm. there's a line he said, what everybody's super, no one is. Yes. So if you're teaching everybody that we have this culture where everybody starts sipping wine at 13, who's trying to get drunk at 18? Not really. I mean, yeah. they're going to have some wine here and there, but I don't think they are. Yeah. Before we move on, I do want to answer this, the second part of your question. When I said there were two things, what I'm currently struggling with yeah. is my eighth thing, food. <laughs> Since food. You about food. Right, let's do it. Yeah. So food for me, I, I do too much celebratory eating. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the constructs that I was formulated with being an American. We eat for birthdays, we eat for holidays, we eat for graduations, mm. we eat for getting an A on the test, you eat for good grades, you eat for all these things, eat, 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 eat. But we don't celebrate with knowledge, we don't celebrate with exercise, no. we don't celebrate with things that actually prolong life. Yeah. So now I'm still trying to get rid of the psychology of, hey man, it's my birthday, come out and hang out, we got a whole food spread on the table, get what you want, but am I really there to eat or am I there for the celebration? Yeah. So I need to learn how to celebrate to, yeah. the actual person and the, whatever you're going to do. But you don't have to eat. You don't have to take those drinks. You could just celebrate. Yeah. You know how hard that is? Yeah. And it's all <laughs> balance, too. Yeah. It's learning balance. Like, yeah. So at, like I've, I've before my surgery, I'm like typical jock. My brother and I used to compete on how many different sports we can perfect and mm. win awards in in mm. school. We play varsity basketball, soccer baseball ran marathons like we did all of it mm-hmm. right we were on the swim team bro i played cricket which uh, is not only that. culturally is not my sport yeah. but even like as a black person I'm like i don't know what this is but we're gonna do it anyway just to compete right mm-hmm. my brother and i were those guys and to go from that and i used to be boy as well so like mm-hmm. to after surgery because of the medication but also because my body's suddenly getting health again i ballooned i gained so much weight I couldn't stop eating. I was keeping in mind, as I said earlier, like I was in close quarters for months, right? So I do just play computer games and eat. So I ballooned and I came back to school twice my size. <laughs> and I had to learn how to regulate and balance that out. Mm-hmm. And my, I mean, also shout out to my trainer because he, the way he put it, the context of it is great. He's like, have you ever seen a fat gardener? And I'm like, huh? And he's like, no, honestly, think about it. Like, gardeners, especially in the UAE, for those that don't live here, because, like, they ride a bicycle between houses, mm-hmm. and they're working outdoors constantly all the constantly, time. and it's the, hot. Exactly. The only time you'll see one that is, is they're not fat, but they got a little belly, because that's because they overeat, mm. right? It's just like your bank account, right? You can't take money out of your bank account unless you have some savings. And if you don't have savings, then you're in a then you're in a deficit. Mm-hmm. So treat your body the same way. So if you're in a caloric deficit, what's your body going to end up doing? It's going to end up losing weight, right? And then if you're in a, in a caloric surplus, your body's going to try and save it just like a bank. So you're putting in, mm-hmm. you're, you're going to keep an extra weight. So it's like, you got to create that balance. And if you don't, for nerds like I am, if you're not going to measure and develop like a, a mathematical system for it and you see the transition over time you're not going to know what it is that you're doing right or wrong right, right. so that's Write what i make your vision plain exactly 
Absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the questions I asked. Do you have how early did you start goal setting? Do you have a vision board? So I this time of year, I usually right before Christmas, I like to set in vision board. Um, sometimes I write them down. Sometimes I do in my head. Um, but I take that time for myself to course correct. And I do it again on my birthday in March. Um, and th- th- even though like they're quite close together, but I do that for, for my benefit. I've yeah. never heard nobody say they course correct during the vision board. I heard people say they vision boards, yeah. but they I heard people say they do they have a roadmap to the goal on the vision board. Yeah. But course correct, yeah. that is something I've never heard. Yeah, because New Year's is or around Christmas is the perfect time to put your vision board for the new year, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. Instead of, you know, having my New Year's resolution, oh, this is my vision board. And I realized we get so caught up in the day to day of life that you forget what you've set for yourself. So I get lucky mm. because my birthday is in March. I like to look back at what I've decided I wanted to do just as a refresher. And if I'm deviating from it, I pull myself back into and course correct. Right. Um, another great tool, which actually my cousin used to do this as a, uh, when she was younger and she's a university professor today. Um, she had a plus written on a piece of paper in her closet. Right. And she had um, and I remember was that like uh, to be a professor. And that's what she'd look at every single day her entire life until she got. Not only did she get there, she's one of the best doctors. She became she went to med school and then became a university professor. And she's great at it. And she loves what she does. And I learned that part of vision boarding is not to complicate it. It mm. could be that one thing you want to be better right. at, you know, and set this reminder for yourself every single day. Sometimes you and you'll forget it's there. But subconsciously, your mind picks up yeah, on it picks every up time. On it. Yeah. Yeah. Who plans for you? That's the last thing I'm gonna give you out of the book. Who plans for you is one of the chapters. Do you allow people to steal your time from you, even your friends when they know you're on a mission? Do they call you and say, "Hey, man, I know you've been working hard, but come hang out with us"? Are oh, they, they, are they do that all the time. <laughs> Don't no, let no. them do it to so you. So here's the thing. No, I mean, shout out to my business partners because they're also <laughs> my best friends because we're very diligent. Yes. And we love our we love each other enough to discipline each other. And most of all, we call each other to task and yes. call each other out on our BS, yeah. right? But also, we celebrate together yeah. our moments. You, well, know? you should celebrate. Don't get always, me wrong. Always. And right? your friends should tell you when you're working too hard, too. Exactly. Right? And we always do that, too. Like, Reem, I wish she was here. We were, we were talking about this the other day. So I, I go to Saudi Arabia a lot for business. And mm-hmm. it, when I'm there, it takes me offline completely. I'm usually beat by the time I come back. And I come back and, like... I joke about it, but it's like a Saudi syndrome. Like, I come back, like, I'm jet-lagged, even though it's only a two-hour flight away. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's like, you're about to burn out. And I have, and I've, I've been working on this for the past couple of years. Um, I usually work till burnout. I don't stop until then. Unintentionally. Unknowingly. Right? And I think because I'm post-transplant, what ends up happening is when you're stressed or you're burnt out, your immune system drops. And you get sick. I don't think it's just the transplant. Yeah, I think everybody. You, I, for me, it, I work to burn out too. And I, yeah. get, and I start getting sniffles. I say, oh, man, I got to go to sleep. Right. Because my immune system is low. There you go. And in 2020, because also the, 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 the stress of what COVID did to us and the mm. business and everything, I ended up getting shingles. Mm. <laughs> right. Usually, I would get the flu. Like, like clockwork pre-COVID, once or twice a year, I'll get it because I've burnt myself out. Mm-hmm. Right. And the recovery from that is very difficult. 
So she sat me down and she's like, no, no, we're not going to let this happen this year. You cannot burn out because you burn out, the business is going to struggle because who else is leading the ship? Yeah. She's like, yo, ass better be well to your best performance. She's like, stop working. Take the weekend off. Take time off. You got to disconnect from work. You got to do this. Yeah. Go watch a movie. Go do something stupid. Go for a run. Whatever it is, just don't work. Right. And I had to learn how to set boundaries, not just around the business from the business but also from my family as well because when you're to your question who sets my time for me my in sudanese culture we give back to our parents and we give back to our family right and part of that giving back sometimes end up being boundless Mm. and if you don't set boundaries that's going to eat up your finances it's going to eat up your time your energy your mental health Right. And setting healthy boundaries is one of the most difficult things I had to do with my family. So if you can describe the Sudanese culture and community in one word, what would it be? If there was like the theme, it only had to be one word. If it was just a theme for what your community is as a whole, what would it be? It's always about the we and never the I. Mm. You was ready for that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I've been I've been like I've been working around this for quite a while. Because one is to explain it to other people constantly, but also to make sense of it to myself. Because here's the thing. Yes, I'm Sudanese citizen and Sudanese born, but I, I think in English first. I don't think in Arabic or Sudanese first. So I'm culturally American because of what I've consumed and what I've invested into. You're going to love this. Yeah. You're going to love this quote. Okay, that's the first time I heard thinking English. Not, this is not the first time I heard it. The yeah. first time I heard it was... Poor Righteous Teachers, hip, famous hip-hop group, Wise yeah. Intelligent, was on my show. And he said, most of us think in English, but there's so many other languages to learn. Yeah. And the fact that you think in English is, right. people listen to what we're talking about here. There are many languages in the world. What language do you think in? Yeah. What can you switch to when it's time? Right. So it's can funny when I speak switch? Arabic. I, obviously, I speak Arabic, and I code switch. I can read and write, no yeah. problem. But I'm English first. Uh, and then I have, and so I make a, you know, it's like a conscious decision to speak in Arabic. Anybody that speaks more than one language is like that, right? Mm. Like, for example, Reem is half Iraqi, half Filipino Canadian, right? She speaks Tagalog. She understands, reads, and writes Arabic, but she doesn't speak it very well, right? And she thinks in English first because she was raised in, in Canada, right? Even though Akawi, our partner, is Lebanese and born in Abu Dhabi and grew up here, he. Sw- Here's the interesting thing, because even though Arabic is one language, you have 22 Arab nations. That means 22 different dialects. So same same words can mean very different things, Mm. right? So what means nose in Sudan means mouth in the UAE, right? What means bread in other parts of the Arab world can mean rice in the GCC. So there are different dialects and different understandings of the language Akawi has to switch between a Lebanese or an Emirati, for example. I understand and I can code switch between all different Arabic dialects. And that's what being a third culture is, mm. third culture kid is, right? Where your parents are from one part, but you're technically from another, but then culturally you're something completely different as well, mm. right? And that, it makes you a chameleon. You can go anywhere in the world and you become culture hungry. 
I, I, I believe you know? it. I believe it. I, I love listening to that. Now, a couple, few more. You talk about culture hungry. Yeah. Do you think there can ever be a community-based thing? Now, let's talk worldwide. Will we teach these dialects in English? Will we teach how to change the tie, how to change the tie? Like, we're actually, now, this is like community talk where you actually hold an Arabic class and a Zoom class for kids in America who just want to learn Arabic. They don't even know Arabic exists. Like, hey, we're going to have a Zoom class. It's sponsored by such and such company. And you come on and you just actively teach Arabic so the rest of the world, when they come over here, they can uh, they can code switch. They can be a part of what's going on here, just like hip-hop culture. Right. De- yeah, definitely. I think you should. I think I, I would love to hear that. Anybody's yeah. listening, if you got the resources, let's give it a try. Yeah, let's do it. Because it's actually really interesting because, like, not – Yes, the alphabet. For, don't worry about the alphabet. Just learn the words and putting it within context. Like, I remember, so I, I did it this girl, this was, oh, my God, years ago. I'm going to put myself on blast right now. So <laughs> I remember I was, I, was, I was a high school senior, right? And we went on a family vacation to Malaysia. And back then, you know, boys playing all kinds of sports, pumping iron, you know, doing my thing. I'm in the gym working out, and I see in the mirror this little fine honey going to the pool, Right. I'm like, bro, forget the weights. <laughs> Went to the pool, you know, and my, my, my brother was still a baby at the time. So, I was like, I'm like, yo, come, come through with me to the pool, man. I need it. Because, like, you know, having little babies with you is a great wingman. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, anyway, so, you know, it becomes yes. this little summer fling, and we start to have a good time and all. And then when she, she was, I remember she was leaving before we were, and I'm like, oh, so where are you headed? And, you know, going back to the U.K. And he's like, actually, no, my family lives in, in this city called Alain in Dubai. My dad works at the Coke factory or something. Mm-hmm. I remember it was, like, it was the Coca-Cola factory or something like that. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to university, and that's where I'm headed. I'm like, oh, cool, no way. I live in Sharjah at the mm. time. I'm like, oh, my God, that's so cool. So this weird, which should have just stayed a summer fling, <laughs> ended up expanding beyond that, right? So anyway, um, little did I know those girls spoke fluent Arabic. English girl? just happens to be born and raised in Dubai, and she enunciates, she pronounces the letters right, she speaks like an Arab. Mm. But because they say this white girl, they don't think she can speak Arabic. Yeah, so right? they start talking around this. Exactly. <laughs> and, she, and then she'll turn around and clap back at you in Arabic, and like, oh, damn. Mm. And like, she's fluent. She sounded mm. like an Arab. But just because she grew up in L.A. and around you know, mm. a lot of Emiratis, she, she learned from her friends in school, mm. right? And she couldn't read or write. But she could have a, a conversation, conversation with you as an Arab. So definitely, yeah, let's teach her, man. All right, we got three rapid questions left, and we get ready to wrap it up. All right. Are you ready? Also, just as a note, I date within my own race now. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was me in high school. Don't judge me. <laughs> hey, man, listen, listen. You can go out and have fun, hey, man. I'm not even going to dive right, down that Your that rapid avenue. questions. Let's do this. Let's get it popping. What are the top three things you want in a woman? Understanding. Um, ooh, this was good. Okay, so understanding. Um, another one is compatibility. And three, which is I think probably one of the sexiest things I see in one, is intelligence, intellect overall. Bravo um, to you, sir. The one I always stress is intelligence, and you yeah, hit it right on the head. Yeah, like intellect is sexy because we're both going to age. At some point, we're both not going to look like we did when we were 30. And you got you to gotta have somebody that gets Mind stimulation. Amen. So how much are you trying to understand communication? Are you familiar with the five love languages? Yes, I am. Absolutely. Mine are time and touch. 
Absolutely. I love to hear those kind of questions. So now, you have to answer one of these. You have to pick one. It's subjected towards you. Okay. Would you rather have a as a husband, as a husband? Let's put mm-hmm. you in the husband category. You know, sure. You would you rather have a great woman or a great wife? Ooh. And explain your choice. Do I get context on why you chose? The context is all you. Words? Oh, that's on me. So it's how yeah. I get it. I yeah. understand it. Yeah. So first off, by the way, communications is information. How information is rece- received, not how it's being sent. But mm-hmm. which I, I, I was. I thought it was very interesting when I learned that because everybody translates information differently. Yeah, you ever read a text and thought somebody was yelling at you, but they weren't? Exactly. <laughs> right? So that's a good example. Um, okay. So would I rather have a woman or a wife? Yeah. As, as a so, husband, would yeah. you rather have a great woman or a great wife? Mm. I would say a great wife because the way I see it is that a great wife, that means is that the context of wife is as a, is, is a life partner and somebody that I take on the world with, that I build with and I nurture with, and we challenge each other to be better and or be the, our best selves and build great things together, right? Whereas as a husband, if it's just a great woman, I think a great woman actually... Mm. Now, the more I think about it, the more my I code s- my my response switches. Um, actually, no, a great woman because I'm gonna take that back. So, a great woman because I feel like that's more well-rounded. You don't have to just be a great wife to me, but also a great woman within within yourself for yourself first. I think wife selecting saying that it's uh, to have a great wife is a very selfish response whereas a great woman she's great for herself first before for the marriage yeah most people can love you better when they love themselves and when Amen. they can tell you how to love them yeah like if you don't know yourself how can you tell someone how to love you true so i but the answer is wherever you are in your personal preference so there's no wrong or right answer. yeah next question as a husband mm-hmm. would you rather have man of the year or father of the year hmm As a husband, would I rather have man of the year or father of the year? Mm-hmm. I'd say man of the year. Because at this point in my life, so the, the age difference between myself and my youngest brother is 22 years. Mm. So I've already, I take him to the skate park. I take him to basketball practice. I take, uh, we, we went to the mall yesterday so he can buy gifts for his best friend's birthday. Right. So I've, I feel like I, I'm learning. He's to be honest, I'm learning so much from him to his credit. Um, but point being to be man of the year, just like my previous answer about wife or woman, mm-hmm. um, I need to be better at everything. Being a good husband, being a good father, being a good business person, being good within myself, you know, and uh, being good in my community contributions and the work that I do for people. And it goes back to leaving people better than you found them. Whereas being a father of the year, that means I'm only just doing great for my kids rather than doing, being great for, being good at doing things for the community at large and giving back. 
Absolutely. I came up with something called operating at 100%. And okay. what I mean by that is I took five categories, operating at 20% a piece to add up to 100%. Ooh. We have purpose, health, confidence, money, and knowledge. Again, that's purpose, health, confidence, money, and knowledge. Each representing 20% is a way to develop yourself and to keep track of what your progress is when you give yourself an average at the end of the week or the end of the day or the end of the month. Right. If you're operating above 80%, you know you're headed towards your goal. Mm. Purpose means you're living in your purpose, doing the things you need to do. Health means you're working out, meditating, praying, whatever things you do to keep yourself centered. Knowledge means you took in some new information. Confidence, you did everything without any fear. And money is you saved, invested, or spent money today towards your future. So I actually missed the OT. You represent Dukan today, 1,000%, one of three, one mm -hmm. of many. And how much of 100% have you been operating out of in the last 24 hours? That's purpose, health, confidence, money, and knowledge. I would say probably about, about 90%. What are you missing, sir? When it comes to health, I haven't trained. You haven't trained. I haven't trained yet. <laughs> hey, hey, listen. I'm, I'm, I, haven't, I haven't been like 100% with my workout, so that. Listen, 90% is a real good thing, but you know what mm -hmm. you got to do, and now you're keeping track of your footnotes of where you can be the best person you can be. Of course, to correct. that man of the year award. You got to course correct. I want to thank you, sir. For coming yeah. on the show today is people like you who come out the shadows to help people like me shine. Bro, now, before you go. I'm honored, man. <laughs> before you go, yeah. we love to get referrals for the show. Yeah. Is anybody who love to come on the Solutions for Men's podcast and drop these gems and answer these questions? Even though she's a woman, but she's worth more than a million men. Reem, my business partner, she is a force. I mean, my God. I don't like I think I got very lucky when we met. And decided to build businesses together, like my best friend. And she's such an inspiration, a very powerful woman in every regard. And I think that I, I'm like, I can't express how much your listeners would be missing out. You know, it's so show. funny. Everybody wants me to bring a female <laughs> on this show. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I, I said we're not going to have any females. We're going to have a place for men. And I, I've, really? read some, I've read some of Reem's quotes. I read when she said, sweetheart, just be alone. There's a lot of things to be learned there in solitude and solidarity. Yeah. And she's she has, a writer. She has some great quotes there. Yo, and Reem has been, if I thought my life was difficult, good God, what she's been through. Right. And to come out the other end the way she is. And to be inspirational the way she, as inspirational as she is. And more importantly, everything Reem does, does with love first. And coming where she came from, to have that as her North Star is powerful. I read something else she wrote, and I thought it was super mm. powerful. She said, the male gaze does not empower you. Never has. Never will. There you go. And, that, and, and if you're a man, you understand the dichotomy of validation yeah. and we have to grow ourselves past validation where we just know that we're doing good yeah no doubt um another great ma a person that you should have on the show actually who is male just to uh, listen i'm listening <laughs> i take all, i'm I taking things, I'm taking people, things organically i can recommend a lot if of Reem people is gonna be the first one we have then it's gonna be the first one i think we he have. should be um <laughs> but if i am to recommend guys to your show um carlos mayor 
Ah. He because not only was he a huge contributor to hip hop culture, but he also was at some point the U.S. ambassador of culture, and now he's the curator at the Museum of Graffiti in Miami. So Carlos, guy got stories for days. Bronx overload. Yeah, that would like, be a Bronx overload. Oh, for real? Me, like, yeah, he will be. <laughs> like Carlos, yo. You know, I love. Where I'm, I love where I'm from. I love it. I yo. brag about it on the inside yeah. all the time. Like, you should. <laughs> trust he, me. He's, he's one of those guys. Um, ooh, Lord Finesse. Lord Finesse. When we had him on the show, man, the, I, I, there's a lot of hip hop royalty. I think that we know of their work and their contribution, but we don't know their story. So what we could do, OT, I rely on you to right. get me in contact with all three. I and got we, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's we'll, easy. That's we'll do, easy. We'll do all three and we'll have them on. And if anybody no else doubt. you recommend, we'll definitely and take also, it. Okay, one last person. Sure. Just because just, uh, I want to throw them in there. Um, Trinidad James. Trinidad. Because I, because I misjudged him because of his music as well. I remember I told him, like, I thought you was a joker, bro. I didn't think you were my guy. <laughs> Can I, because of the music he makes. And, w- my God, what a guy. Let, let me tell you Dude. something a lot of people don't understand. Um, I will say this, and I'm trying to put this the best way I can. Very smart people know how to do simplistic things better yes. than most. Yes. And what what happens is... They figure it out. So when people talk to me about Lil Wayne or someone mm-hmm. they see optically and say, oh, he just drinks lean. These guys are smart. These guys are not dumb. I've, I've been around these people. I've yeah. heard them speak intelligently. I've heard them, I've heard them talk in, in, in many ways more than one. And these guys are super duper no doubt. smart people. Yo, some of the smartest out there, man. And, you know, there's it's just... There's a reason why they got to where they are, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's not just because the public likes their music, but there's sometimes certain, like, there's something you're missing. Mm-hmm. But also, if you just go through life with the outlook of what can I learn from everybody, right? Then you see the world differently, right? It's not about let's judge them because they're being whack on TV. But no, no, like, why is he doing that? Mm-hmm. Like, learning from Tony Dead Gyms is like, I don't trust the banks. I got everything in gold. That's why I sing about all, I rap about all gold, everything. I'm like, for real? He's like, yeah, because like the tax man's gonna come for you. There's <laughs> a reason. So it's like, and and, but also there's just so much depth that I think when we judge them based on a f- music video or an award speech or whatever it is, there you haven't given it enough time for depth, and that's why podcasts are great. Yeah. Right. Hey. And having those kind of people on the show is great. Um, but I had. Throughout our journey, we've had some incredible people I could recommend a lot. I'm with, have I'm with it. I'm with it all. El Cid, the calligraphy artist. Oh, yes. I'll connect you with him. Definitely, definitely should be on your show. Um, because he took something so American like graffiti and added an Arabic touch to it and created something called calligraphy because he was a traditional calligraphy artist and mm. brought, married these worlds together. This guy painted a mural across 51 buildings in Egypt. You got to stand at a point on the cliff to be able to read what it says. Wow. Yo. I, have, I haven't been to Egypt yet. I have un, Because of, you know, what's going on outside. Yeah. Haven't been able to, to transfer myself and my mind over there yet. But I'm definitely going to do it. Before you go, is there any, like, shout-outs or anything you'd like to give to anybody? Tell anybody what you're doing. How my listeners can definitely tr- tune in. Yeah, no doubt. So, I want, I mean, shout-out first off, again, my parents, my brothers, 
None of, not any of this would have been possible without them. Shout out to Reem, Akawi, and the rest of the Dukan Media family because we ch- we call each other to task, and this the way we challenge each other to be our better selves should never ever stop. Um, what and then yeah, just like shout out to you, man. Like I am so blessed for meeting you. Uh, shout out to WCC for bringing us together as an yeah. event. Yeah, <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, and more importantly, like we're working on a lot of cool stuff. Not just the Can Show podcast, but like we have eight different shows as part of our network. We develop shows for businesses. But at the end of the day, we are in the data and insight business. And we always say like we're culture consultants first. We're here to help people and businesses understand the people of the Middle East, which is why we built the Can Show in English first, because we wanted to export our culture from here to the world, to the American listeners, to the European listeners, so they can understand Arabs and Muslims and see us for who we are rather than what television is telling you about us. Absolutely important. And uh, we're gonna, I want to talk to you more of air about what you guys are doing in, in terms of shining a light and showing the culture here because I definitely want to assist in that in many ways. I have some ideas. Bless. But I also want to, before we go, I know we, we're short on time. We get ready to go. Shout out. The word shout out. I arguably say it comes from Video Music Box, BJ Ralph McDaniels, when everybody say shout out to my family. Shout yeah. out. So when you shout out, like it's like, this, uh, that's hip hop. So yo, that, but that's the thing. Everything <laughs> we do, bruh, is hip hop. And I, and honestly, every contributor to the hip hop culture, like honestly, shout out to all of them because <laughs> y'all gave us a home. Y'all gave us a space to call home, and you gave us a voice when we thought we didn't have any. Right. Like, gotta pay respects and gotta pay our dues because, bruh, that made that gave people like. Here's an example and. By the time this episode comes out, the music video would be out already. But I managed to get a brand to sponsor a music video of two of the dopest MCs at the Middle East. One is based in Abu Dhabi, Freak, which I don't know, you might have seen some of his work. Mm-hmm. And I li- did. Great. And Little Easy, who's based out of Saudi Arabia. We shot the video between Dubai and Saudi Arabia. And here's what's interesting to, to talking about visas. They're both originally Somali. Even though they live here, Freak couldn't get a visa to Saudi Arabia. Lil Easy couldn't get a visa to the UAE so they can reco- do anything together. But, wow. m- and as like what Damien Marley, uh, what, what Damien Marley said is like, you know, we don't need no visas to come to your speakers, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And hip hop gave these guys a voice and a way to come together and share their voice with the world. So like, that's something we should never forget. Absolutely. That's the impact of hip hop. For those listening, you can reach me at solutionsformen at sheem1.com to be a guest on the show, Clubhouse, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and on the streets if you see me. Before we go, we leave with a quote from Dr. Miles Monroe. True success is not measured by how much you have done or accomplished. It's not compared to what others have done or accomplished. True success is what you have done compared to what you could have done. In other words, living to the maximum is competing with yourself. It's living up to your own true standards and capabilities. Success is satisfying your own personal passion and purpose in pursuit of personal excellence. So question of the day, question of your life. Are you maximizing your life? Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Solutions. OT, I thank you. Thank you, Peace sir. and blessings. Gee, hey. Peace.